families have never been so close in terms of their economic dependency. Parents, um, you know, uh, re- sorry, kids reliant on parents for um, for a home, for a roof over their head, yeah. or support through education, through support with childcare. You know, grandparents, one in four grandparents in the UK does some form of childcare each week for their grandkids. You know, there, there's a huge codependency there that's economic, but also emotional. You know, when I think about my mum and when she when she talks about her relationship with her mother, my mum left home at um, 16. And yes, she had a relationship with her mother, but there was almost like, my grandmother became very old quite early. So my grandmother at 60 was like full, you know, gloves, handbag, old lady wear. And my mom, when I think about my mom at 60, you know, she was shopping in River Island. You know, there was like, it, I think we're all, we're actually all much younger than the generations before that. There's nothing more social than sharing a spritz with friends. And Spritzing Hour shares the stories of those who bring us together over great food and drink. I'm Claire Warner, co-founder of Acorn, a range of non-alcoholic aperitifs. And I'm on a mission to prove just how important great food and drink are in connecting us to one another. I want to expose the bitter truth from the rule breakers and game changers who are turning the table on traditional food and drink culture and reshaping our social lives for the better. I'll be hearing from chefs, growers, bartenders, writers, and a whole host of people who, like me, are curious and passionate about how we can enhance that simple act of grabbing a seat at the table and eating and drinking together. Alyssa, we're here today today to talk about the generations um, and I'm sure you're really familiar with the George Orwell quote which says each generation imagines itself to be more intelligent than the one that went before it and wiser than the one that comes after it. Um, You know what apart from intelligence and being wise what what would you say are the the main differences between the generations? I think you know generational stereotypes are a bit like horoscopes you know there's, there's a kernel of truth in all of them but essentially they're quite limiting in how they can describe individuals and their like lived experience but you know we, we have a society now that is kind of really dominated by four different generations and that's the baby boomers um you know the, the sort of much maligned much criticized baby boomers for um uh, you know projecting onto us all quite conservative values and having all reaping all the rewards of low house prices and now you know one in five baby boomers in the UK is a millionaire so really they are the privileged generation Um, and that's the generation of course that were born in the aftermath of the second world war and really were the benefactors of the social liberalisation in the 1960s and sort of the economic liberalising um, reforms of the 1980s. And now, obviously, they're retired, they're society's grandparents, but they're like forever universal kids, right? They were the child, the children of the 60s. So they're redefining what it means to be old, that generation, I think. And then you have the next generation, which is Gen X, and they're the kind of forgotten generation. So that's that generation born from the mid-1960s through to um, the late 70s. And 
they're the squeezed generation right now because many of them are not only still looking after their kids, Gen Zers in their teens and early 20s, but also looking after elderly parents, you know, the ones that have in the care homes, the ones most vulnerable to COVID. And so they've kind of that squeezed generation that have got those dual, that dual responsibility right now. And then the forgotten generation, actually, but I think they um, forwarded a lot of things that we associate with the millennial generation. So they're the first kind of tech generation, the Sony Walkman kids that became the crackberry adults. They were the generation that kind of just first discovered a kind of identity through traveling um, and food. Um, and I think they're the really pioneering generation. And then you've got, of course, the millennial generation who, as a millennial myself, um, are no longer young. And I think it's really important to say <laughs> um, and gutting to say because they're, you know, that's that generation born between 1981 to 1996. Huge cohort. Um, but they are the smartphone generation. They are the generation associated with generation rent and entering the workforce at a time of the global financial crisis. Um, the majority of millennials are now in their 30s and have done lockdown, not in flat shares with their mates, but with um, partners, pets and kids. Um, and they are a generation, I think, who really have one foot in the 20th century and one foot in the 21st century. And they're the kind of bridging generation, I think, who perhaps understands the sort of expectations um, of their older um, colleagues, but also kind of understand the aspirations of the next generation coming through, the new kids on the block, and that's Generation Z, or Z, depending on where you come from. And that's that generation in their early 20s, teens now, who you know, have come of age at a really time of, oh, you know, frustration and, and turmoil, you know, whether it be um, Brexit, the rise of populism, climate change crisis, and now COVID, they are and have lived through a, a period of intense uncertainty and chaos. And I think they're actually much more serious, savvier, um, and, and kind of, uh, complex as a result and, and you know you're seeing them be much more politicized than gener um, the millennials were at their age you know leading the charge against institutional racism or climate change they're much more serious and sober we'll get to that um, in terms of their attitude towards um, drugs um, uh, excess whether it be eating meat or drinking alcohol um, they don't smoke in the same way that young older generations did they're much they're having less sex as young than young people did um uh, at their age so they're a much more sort of sober and serious generation and i think that's partly because of the time at which they've grown up um which has been a real time of uncertainty um but of course also they are 21st century kids the majority of whom have had a smartphone in their pocket since they were 13 and have lived their adolescence on social media and that's actually made them i think much more aware and have a much more sophisticated understanding of technology and the impact that it can have on your identity and one's life and the benefits of that, um, but also the drawbacks. So, you know, I think we, we fixate on young people and technology, but actually we underestimate their level of awareness and sophistication around mm -hmm. technology. So those are the four generations and they're very different, but actually, do you know what? I think COVID has brought 
certainly families close together and I think in, encouraged a level of intergenerational interdependence, you know, I mean, whether it's young people delivering groceries for older people or um, whatever, it's just been this sense in society, um, along with all other things that have gone down in this pandemic, that we're all interconnected. And the young getting vaccinated is an important way in which the old can be set free, if you like. And I think there is a um, a real moment and understanding that we do have a lot in common, even though, you know, we have all been conditioned by the time at which we grew up. Mm. I mean, it's fascinating because they, they seem to be, you know, very distinct generations, but as you mentioned, they, you know, we, we see a much more of a blurring between those generations. I, I was reading an article in, in the Guardian, I think a couple of days ago, where it was, you know, boomers give Gen Z life advice and, you know, all of these sort of stereotypes play back to boomers, like why are you obsessed with Facebook and, uh, you know, how come you've got so much wealth? But actually, you know, when they gave their answers, they were, they were very empathetic and they weren't the sort of stereotype boomer answers that you would expect. And I think there's a sense of really trying to kind of create um, separation or sort of other generations to kind of, I don't know, create division or, you know, us versus the other generations when actually we can learn so much from each other and, as you say, you know, coexist beautifully. Yeah, and I think the best example of that is within families. I mean, you know, the, I'm not sure it, it's never been, I think, families have never been so close in terms of their economic dependency parents um you know uh, sorry kids reliant on parents for um for a home for a roof over the head or support through education through support with childcare. you know grandparents one in four grandparents in the uk does some form of childcare each week for their grandkids you know there's a huge codependency there that's economic but also emotional you know when i think about my mum and when she when she talks about her relationship with her mother my mum left home at um, 16 and yes she had a relationship with her mother but there was almost like my grandmother became very old quite early so my grandmother at 60 was like full, you know, gloves, handbag, or lady wear. And my mom, when I think about my mom at 60, you know, she was shopping in River Island. You know, there was, like, I think we're all, we're actually all much younger than the generations before that. And actually that's meant that mothers and daughters, there's a closeness there in values and even in fashion and in, you know, what you wear, what you eat, what you drink, how you exercise, that was not there Mm. You know, for, for our grandparents, our great-grandparents. Um, mm. I think the gap between the ages and the generations was much more profound. But I, I also think that you're so right when you say there's a commonality and a sort of greater empathy than, than perhaps if you read some newspapers you believe there to be. I'm, you know, at the point of my podcast, you know, it's called It's All Relative and is the that very ethos is to kind of go, actually, we've got more in common than we think. And we kind of understand each other more than we think. Um, And if we look at, I'm interviewing two members of the same family, but from different generations. And and we're discussing, you know, how do you parent and how does that contrast 
with how you were yourself was were parented or how how did you fall into your career and how does that contrast with your parents or perhaps your 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 kids and and actually realizing that there's some kind of eternal truths of humanity <laughs> without trying to get too deep about it and we all kind of want the same things and we want to sort of you remember that when we're pitting old against young in the workplace or in the political space um because i think it's just so important and I think bridging that generation gap is something that is a sort of motivation for me um, that's personal as well as professional, right? Because I'm at the moment in my hallway is a pram for my one-year-old daughter and a trolley, uh, shopping trolley for my (laughs) 73-year-old mother. And I am in that intergenerational moment right there living with my, my mother and, you know, looking after my kids. And I feel that generation gap every time we sit down at breakfast and my mum hands my son a, you know, bread and butter with jam and insists that it's healthy. And I feel that (laughs) generational moment when, you know, no one in my family apart from me can work the TV remote. Um, And I feel that generation moment throughout my day. And I think that it's, it's therefore just something I'm completely fascinated by. And I think that it's, it's important whether we're talking about the workplace, politics or the home. Mm. it is so fascinating I mean my mum retired on Friday and I think back to when my grandmother retired you know as you mentioned you know my my grand worked until she was in her 70s my my mum retired she's 66 and you know to put the two of them side by side you know my mum looks you know younger than me frankly and my grandmother looked you know when she retired like a, a real old lady and I suppose there's such a yeah, I feel much closer to my mum as a consequence than 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 I think she felt to her mum. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, we talk about the same thing. She she sadly isn't into Love Island, otherwise that would be at the top of our conversations right now. But you know, we we have a lot in common, and I think that's that's a. That's a, that's a lovely thing to have now. Whereas I know that when my grandmother passed away, my mum was was you know very very of course upset, but mourned the loss of a relationship that she didn't really feel that she had with her mum because yeah. there was so much you know distance between them. Um, and you know we we are very close. We're more like friends than than mother and daughter. And I think that's. Do you think is that more common today than than it was back then? So I mean it's. It's you think about now how the whole mother-daughter relationship, whether it be in twinning on Instagram or fashion, mother-daughter fashion in on River Island, River Island got a whole range of mother-daughter fashion. No um, way. Yeah, they do. They do. You can buy the same. Um, oh my god! Don't tell my mum. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that. Um, it's true. I think parent culture of parenting has changed so that we are more willing and, 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 and more likely now to see our kids, particularly as they grow up as, as that nurturing that friendship rather than just that authoritative relationship. Um, I think also like, you know, I was saying earlier on, I think just our lived experience, our values, whether it be our attitude towards homosexuality or attitude towards traveling or our, you know, perception of what fashionable clothes look like has, it's just so much closer between mother and daughters now um, than it was 30 years ago. Um, And I think that started with the baby boomers uh, Mm. and it's become an even, it's become even truer for for older, uh, younger generations as we 
progressed. Um, I also think, though, that um, there's, you know, there's coming, we're coming towards a, a time where we are heading most of the world, actually, not just the UK, where the old will outnumber the young and we are heading for an aging society. Um, and the responsibility for looking after the elderly, you know, we hear every day in the news about social care crisis. Well, it's a very real one. And actually the onus and the responsibility for that care will fall on the family because, you know, it's unlikely the state will pay. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I think there's going to come a time when that, I mean, happens within all families actually, where mm -hmm. that care reversal happens where you know the, the the child stops being looked after by the parent and the child starts to be the parent in the family mm. and parents mm. the parents mm. and it's it's I mean my father passed away two years ago and trying to nurse him through cancer and look after him and lecture him about what he should be eating and um it was so difficult because he just wasn't really accepting that he'd lost that authority as the father mm. figure in the family um and even now with my mother when I'm sort of you know parenting her and particularly over COVID oh my god <laughs> Telling my mother not to leave the house. I mean, it's classic reversal of what she was saying to me when I was 16. You can't leave the house. It's dangerous out there. And, you know, and I was like being this lecturing daughter saying, Mom, what are you talking? There's a pandemic on. Don't leave the house. And she was being this rebellious boomer. And uh, it was really hard. And she didn't take me seriously. I don't think she takes me seriously now. And... It's, it's that that's going to be really tough when we talk about, you know, mothers and daughters being friends. What happens when, you know, that mother is slightly older and that friendship actually becomes one of care, um, mm. you know, carer, actually, mm. actually. And that's, I think, just going to be really tough. Yeah, I mean, I feel very unprepared for that, if I'm honest. And I, I wonder if there's a greater prevalence of, needing to care for your older parents, then maybe there might be more support given to us to help, you know, help us through that because, you know, you're not taught how to look after your parents uh, at school or even how to parent, um, let alone, you know, what you get to sort of my age and where we are sort of looking at caring for um, certainly my father-in-law. And, you know, you've, I, I feel very unprepared and ill-equipped actually to provide you know, good quality care. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's just one of the failings, I think, of society in that we, we just don't know how to care for our elderly. Yeah, and I think to a certain extent, it, it, it is a new problem, right? Because mm. people didn't live as long and they certainly did, didn't live as long with existing underlying health conditions and debilitating health conditions. So the problem is a new one, you know, having to look after someone who's ha who has dementia or mm. you know, potentially for years um, is a new problem in society. And in China and indeed France, they now have legislated. Um, so it's now you are legally bound to be responsible for your parents um, until they die, like wow. parents are legally responsible for their children. 
and you can be fined or, um, you know, basically taken to court if you neglect your parents. And I think, I don't know if they'll do that here, but in the UK, but I think it's an indication of states across the world that are sort of really weighing up how they can deal with this this issue of an aging society and the responsibility of mm. care and where that falls. And I would just add to that, and, and my horror um, is that the onus and the responsibility falls on women, disproportionately falls on daughters and daughters-in-law. Mm. And it already does. Um, but I think about we're talking about the pregnancy penalty impacting women's careers as they have children. Well, you're then also now talking about the social care penalty 10 years later, or even sometimes concurrently to, to mm. children when they look after their parents and their parents-in-law. So at what point <laughs> do women have parity in the workplace? Um, so I think that actually really interesting conversation is going to happen within companies where you, you currently offer maternity leave. Are you going to start offering a paternity leave? Are you going to start offering social care leave? Yeah. Um, for male and females as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, gosh, let's change tack a little and talk. Talk. <laughs> let's talk about the. Uh, let's talk about the Gen Zs for a second, because I'm. I'm really curious when, when you were describing, um, you know, the the, the generations Z, uh, how they are. You know, are they the anti fun brigade? You know, they they don't drink. They're not having sex. You know, I, f- I feel. Should I feel bad for them? You know, what's what's going on with that Gen Z? How are they having fun? I, th- I mean, I, th- I think maybe I did them a bit of a disservice. <laughs> so kind of serious generation, because I think they're a very exciting, entrepreneurial, savvy generation. Um, you know, they're buying and selling goods on Depop. They're making their own money. They're creating their own content. They're all influencers in their own right and to a certain degree. They are... I think much savvier when it comes to money, much more realistic when it comes to education and what it's worth and what it can do for you and where it can get you. I think they are determined to learn from millennials' mistakes. Um, Like all generation, learn from the one that's gone before you. I think they are going to have to be less dependent on their parents because their parents are not as rich, but therefore much more independent um, and that will serve them well. So I'm quite excited by Gen Z. I think there's an energy and a kind of punkness to them um, that is is really refreshing and challenging to even the millennials in their 30s going, oh, God, yeah, I wasn't that cool when I was younger. (laughs) I mean, I definitely, I definitely wasn't that cool. And I definitely wasn't cool so cool that I you know didn't even need to think about alcohol I mean according to Mintel 32% of of that generation don't drink won't drink might not ever drink um you know so so, it's really interesting because I think there's a definite reason for that and it's to do with technology so I think that this generation as I said has had a smartphone in their pocket since they were 13 and basically have had surveillance and a camera 
in their pockets since they were 13. The potential for all their mistakes, all their embarrassing moments, every you know time they were pissed and every bed they've slept in to be documented and uploaded. So it's not just documented, right, but it's shared. That's the real fear. Mm-hmm. And I think that's curtailed their behavior as a result and their desire to be in control of their um, behavior and what they do. And that's inevitably meant that drinking to excess um, they are drinking, of course, but they're not drinking to excess in the same way as become um, the ex- socially acceptable. Um, and it, drinking to it, it becomes socially unacceptable, I should say. Mm. When I think back to my university years, I mean, Freshers' Week was absolute carnage. <laughs> I mean, it was it was so debauched. And the idea of someone saying, no, I'll have a non-alcoholic drink, please, was is just completely... Was, would have been completely unfathomable and yeah. just wouldn't have heard it. And I think that now, you know, you contrast that experience with, I mean, not, not at the moment because they're not really living a, a traditional university experience with COVID, but, you know, the rise of sober socials and the rise of well, just the spread of non-alcoholic drink options in student bars, the move away from all you can drink for five pounds entry, you know, all of that kind of, I mean, there used to be a bar in Soho called um, Cheapskates, which I think was 60p a drink. Oh, my God, that's a great name. But, yeah, that's... Cheapskates. We used, used to get 30 vodka and oranges and line them up, and that would be us for the night. And it would be like, just that, I think, that whole binge culture, drinking binge culture, which I think had a really, in the 90s, had a really kind of... Um, uh, became more of a female, as much of a female thing as a male thing. It suddenly became socially acceptable that women could drink and could drink to accept, <laughs> excess. And it was partly that whole like birth of ladder, ladder culture and all of that kind of thing. But mm. I think for today's kids, you look at celebrity role models, they're all like, you know, Grace Beverly doing, um, you know, planks in her living room and, and you know, mindfulness. Like there's no... <laughs> sort of we had Amy Winehouse they have Grace Beverly I mean it's just like completely different visions of 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 what good living um looks like Mm. and Mm. I think that's also just a more sober culture that we're living in where wellness is prioritized as you know the goal really yeah I mean, you know, when we think of, into the future, how might uh, how might that affect where we socialise and how we socialise? Because all I've ever known is you go to the pub to meet your mates, or you, you know, you, if you want to meet someone, for you go for a drink. You know, how might that how might that show up in the future when when we're not going for a drink to socialise or connect anymore? I think it's really since the, it's coming kind of what they've replaced it with. So food culture and the sort of um, food tourism and food ex- experimentation and how food has become almost replaced alcohol as, as something you experiment with mm-hmm. um, and coffee obviously brew bars are the new pubs and you know pubs are declining in the UK whereas brew bars are you know um, growing and the idea of coffee going for coffee has obviously the replace going for a pint and it's interesting how it's um infiltrated dating culture and work after after work culture so I mean I talk to a lot of companies now where they will say it's just not 
like drinking during the lunch hour, massive no-no. Um, I was talking to one guy who's basically a whole of his team were under 25. And he said the idea of a liquid lunch was just completely like an, a complete anathema to these kids and drinking during the working day. But also even going to for a drink after work has just become one of those things where people go, mm, should I do that? Should I not do that? I certainly will only stay for a certain amount of time and be aware of my behavior and all of that. Um, so I think it, it's infiltrated work culture, but I also think dating culture as well. The idea of, of going for a coffee for a, day, a first date rather than going for a drink is, is an interesting switch. Um, and I think I'm so glad I'm so glad I'm married. I would not do well in this uh, <laughs> in, in this time. Wine goggles on. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I don't think um, I certainly wouldn't have dated who I dated if they had been sober. <laughs> Probably wouldn't have met my husband either. So I think it's I cannot imagine, and that's I'm, I'm not a very good drinker either. So, but I just cannot imagine my twenties with alcohol without alcohol because it's such a big part of it mm. um so yeah so as as the you know the the gen z or the younger generations are changing uh you know the way that they socialize is that having an effect on how other generations also think about their leisure time are they looking at younger generations and thinking oh they're drink they're going for coffee maybe we should go for coffee does it have a you know does it have an effect or do we continue to just do the things that we have done in our youth until we age? I think there's one thing definitely which is and I think it's been accelerated by lockdown is that um Gen Zers who moved back home um were saying you know basically in introducing to their parents and educating them on non-alcoholic options and I think um for the gen x's those in their kind of 50s and 60s their parents um i think there is that kind of um two-way dialogue going on about alcohol um non-alcoholic drinks i think there's also you know they are a product of their time and the time at which they've grown up this whole kind of mantra around wellness has taken on a more holistic form. So whereas in the 80s you had, you know, Jane Fonda in her workout videos and Arnold Schwarzenegger in the gym, you know, now it, it wellness is about, you know, our diet so much more, our, um, our mental health, our, you know, obviously our aspirations for our body as well and fitness. And I just think that it's not just Gen Z are, are kind of reflecting that culture. But I also think older generations are recognizing that, particularly in a pandemic, health um, and a holistic view of health is really important. And um, I think that, I think people are just ass assessing their consumption of alcohol in perhaps ways they weren't before. And mm. I think there was a time I remember speaking to someone at Seedlip actually um, of their, what their pandemic figures looks like, looked like. And there was a real drop in sales at the beginning of the pandemic <laughs> where everyone started, you know, ordering lots of wine and, and, <laughs> and, and realizing that was the only way they were going to get through it to then suddenly sort of around sort of June time sales going up 
where people would realize they got into a really nasty habit of drinking wine every evening and <laughs> it wasn't doing them any good. So I think, I think people have gone through peaks and troughs and, and, and had different relationships with alcohol. But I think when we're talking about non-alcoholic drinks, I think it's just seeing it as an antidote to alcohol is, is, is actually doing it an injustice because I think certainly for me, my um, pandemic was very much about sort of having that moment in my evening where I took time to, you know, work was finished, kids were in bed to just kind of like go, right, I'm going to take time to produce this Negroni or acorn bitter. And I'm going to just enjoy and revel in that moment of creating myself a really nice drink and sitting down and drinking it as a really nice kind of start to the evening and the end of the working day. And I think there was a right kind of real luxury in that. And I think mm-hmm. one thing the pandemic has given us all is a sense of our own time back. Mm-hmm. And I think what Acorn and, you know, see that I think by its kind of, I don't know, it's, it's created that sense of, right, I'm going to make this an occasion. I'm going to make this a moment in my day that's a really accentuated moment in my day. And mm. I'm going to take time to enjoy it. Um, and it's it's the very opposite of, you know, kind of just slugging a, a load of wine into a glass at the end of the day and going, oh, my God, how did I get through that? It's just kind of like really lux- luxuriating in that moment. Mm. And I think actually our relationship with time and has really changed over this pandemic. And, and I feel like there's a real desire to just do things a bit slower. Yeah, yeah. That chaos that we all had before and yeah. and then to embrace that and embrace that in things we eat, how we cook and how we drink and also maybe how we socialise, you know, and, and, and I think a real joy in the home and and I think people are really assessing assessing where they live and and also just a real enjoyment in the family and having mm. family moments and whether that be just having a really proper conversation with your husband about his working day or whether it's just having doing a jigsaw with your five-year-old or taking your dog for a long walk. It's just I think we're all loving that extra mm. um, appreciation of time. Hundred mm, percent. You know, when we launched Acorn, uh, gosh, a couple of years ago now, we would always draw the distinction between uh, European attitudes to leisure and the UK sort of rushing to the pub for that quick drink, and it was sort of like the rush to the end of the day, as opposed to in Europe, it's very much um, you know the celebration of the beginning of the evening, and and because you are welcoming the evening in with you know, aperitifs and small bites of food, it is more relaxed and it is slower and there are, there is a real sense of taking your time. And I think during the pandemic, we've all been able to experience, well, not all of us, but, you know, the privileged few have been able to experience what that sense of slowing down really feels like. So as we come out of the pandemic, I know there's been the rush to the pub, 
but I do hope that you know we still we start to really embrace what it mean what it feels like to welcome the evening with that occasion as opposed to seeing it as a, some sort of end of the day rush finishing line so that we can go to the pub and you know neck a few pints it's almost as though we've we've been granted that European approach to drinking eating socializing yeah and I think you know I mean obviously remote working isn't possible for everyone so we have to preface that Mm. every conversation around the shifting working patterns that is inevitably going to happen after the pandemic but I do think that for those that are afforded the luxury of remote working and there is a real luxury to it although there is also real pressures (laughs) involved that you you know that lack of commute, that taking out of your day is replaced by something much more nourishing and affords, and I think a lot of people have felt like this, is that, okay, I don't have to do the commute anymore. What can I do? Is it have breakfast with my kids? Is it take my dog for a walk? Is it, you know, in the evening, prepare myself a really nice meal? And I think that we have such a commuter culture in the UK that quite often that kind of, oh, let's go for a quick drink before my train or fitting in that kind of quickness um, and rush, constant rush to be everywhere. I think if we just take out that commute, hopefully that that will just make us, I suppose, more European in how we structure Mm. our day. Um, And I think that's a a really good thing. Um, Mm. I mean, I think, I think that it's really interesting that there's a, that you, distinguished between sort of European habits and and, and British habits like that because I think there is just I mean if you go to France you never see people eating on the train (laughs) (laughs) in the UK like (laughs) a 15 minute train journey I swear everyone goes to prep and get like two bags of food (laughs) just in case because the trolley is you know might not be working and it's like and you see people taking packed lunches on trains in Britain it's such a weird (laughs) thing and you go anywhere in the world and you just never see it heaven forbid that we get hungry on a 20 minute train journey I swear my husband if we go to Paddington because we go to the southwest quite a lot and we go to Paddington we'll get there 45 minutes early to stock (laughs) up I'm like it's a three-hour train journey. It's not gonna. It's yeah. It's we're not gonna starve. Um, <laughs> but so I, just, I mean, I find that cu- quite cu- but cu- that much culturally or or yeah that because I know that when we go on a uh, you know a, if we go on a car journey I, we must stop at the garage. We must get supplies. What is that about? <laughs> I know, and it's it's a really strange one because also the supplies at most garages. Are terrible. Like no, it's not healthy. <laughs> not healthy at all. One thing I have actually embraced um, during lockdown is the I've really invested in picnics. I'm loving Ooh. picnics. Um, I'm not a big picnic fan, but so persuade me, bring me round. Why? Why? To be honest, I really go for like pretty wet, soggy sandwiches, pretty substandard fruit, and couple of biscuits wrapped in tinfoil like I'm Love not it. up for like really lavish picnics I, I'm the very opposite what I've realized is I was spending an awful lot of money 
on eating out at various kind of, particularly on kids' meals, and they never eat the food that you buy them. Um, and I was like, just basically get some sustenance <laughs> in the form of a picnic, <laughs> and that will see you through until you get home for dinner. So I've, I've, I must admit, I'm one of my post-lockdown habits is spending less on food on the go. Yes, uh, <laughs> and that's and that's just taking taking. Um, food with me but I've also realized that I'm, I'm I've become much pickier when it comes to restaurants and eating out and it has to be something that I don't cook at home yeah it's something that is is and I'm prepared to pay quite a high price for that if it's something yeah. that I can't actually cook at home and I do wonder actually if people will go out uh to eat as much as they did realizing how much money they've spent up saved I should say um, and and also given that the hospitality industry has obviously put their prices up, um, yeah. whether they're prepared to pay for what's on offer. Yeah, I mean, I hope that when we, you know, if we if we are going out to eat, that we really value it more. Um, you know, I think before lockdown, I know that I, you know, for one, was often out in restaurants, and I really didn't. I just took I took them for granted. And now, you know, um, even going to our local neighborhood restaurant, I mean, I don't I say not even, you know, it's a, it's a lovely lo- local restaurant and we're just so grateful that it's here and it's open and they'll let us in and we can sit down. And it's, you know, we really value that experience now, whereas before it became some, something we'd just do because we couldn't be bothered to cook. You know, it's just right. the, the wrong way of thinking about it. It's interesting because I was I at the start of the lockdown one back in April 2020, I did a series of interviews with people just trying to get a sense of how people were doing lockdown. And one of the people I interviewed was this guy called Mervyn who um, lived on his own in Soho, and his entire day was basically scheduled around eating out. So prior wow. to lockdown, he would have breakfast, lunch, dinner out. He would he didn't even have a toaster in his class. So when lockdown was announced, he basically <laughs> rushed to John Lewis and stocked up his kitchen with the right utensils and 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 the the basically the resources he needed to cook because he had nothing. He barely had a plate and some cutlery. So could he cook? Did he know how to cook? That's the other thing. So he didn't really know how to cook either. So he started to learn and used lockdown, not just to learn how to cook the basics, you know, boiled egg and whatnot, but was starting to take such care and consideration, took online cookery courses, then started documenting his his um, meals on Instagram and became you know really obsessed with cooking and it became his sort of you know thing that he would after lockdown he invited people over and he would put on these lavish dinners and he would also do cooking live on instagram instagram lives and he became his like real 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 sort of um hobby is kind of really an underselling of it obsession really and i said to him after you know sort of actually April this year I was asking you know you going back to restaurants they're they're opening up what's happening and he said you know I I I am going back to restaurants but only ones that I know will serve me food I can't cook at home and he said I know that I will never have breakfast out really again and I will know that you know 
whereas every whereas once before dinner was seven nights a week out barely now it's once every fortnight so he's at the extreme end obviously <laughs> as someone who's done a full um 180, on, 180 on on eating out but I do think that people have, have realized actually to I think to be much more discerning of, of mm. like I say but also appreciative uh, of, of restaurant cooking the joys of not having to clean up oh my god mm. um and fill the dishwasher or do the washing up after <laughs> and is is pure joy and having someone serve it to you is pure the, joy the, the choice for me is it's I always know what I'm going to get at home and I go to a restaurant it's like surprise me my husband has this really annoying habit of like looking at the menu before we get there I'm like why would you do that like be surprised when you get there the menu's put in front of you and it's a joy but he likes to be prepared so I, I don't understand that but you know organized yeah I'm very I'm not sure I'm not sure I could I could no. I could do that, but no. so, I mean, we're going to the theatre on Friday, and we have to pre-order the drinks, and I'm like stressing out that I won't do it, and we'll be just be sat there thirsty. So, just the idea of being that organised impresses me for sure. There you go. Your husband will bring a thermos or something, a mart- martini in a thermos or something. Substandard. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the the generation we don't hear very much about in comparison to the others, which is Generation Alpha. What what um, what can you tell us about? them so that's the generation um after gen z gen z um and it kind of goes back to the beginning of the alphabet which is why they're called gen alpha um they've also been called gen alexa um generation alexa because obviously voice activation for that generation is probably going to be a bigger part of their lives than probably typing um they probably won't have to learn to type so that's the generation that was born after 2010 um, and they're in their kind of they're the under tens now, and and in many ways they are the generation of millennial parents, um, and so they are also the generation that have gone through COVID and had to be homeschooled by their parents, but also seen their parents working from home that those that mm. could work from home so they've almost seen more of their parents than any other generation before them at that age um, and I think you know they are 20 and will be 21st century kids and and we hear a lot of speculative scary stuff about the 21st century and the world it is at this moment I think feels very in flux whether it be over climate change, whether it be kind of over geopolitics and and global order, the sort of tussle between China and America, and whether it be over, I think, the future of ed- education and careers is just going to have a real, you know, impact on this generation in particular. I also think rather oddly, and this is rather morbid thought, but that's the generation that probably won't remember the Queen on the throne mm. and will only remember Charles III as he will be and I find that quite weird because there's a whole you know every you know everyone um Gen Z Gen X millennials Mm. boomers and and the generation after them silent generation will have all remembered Queen Elizabeth so it's it'll Mm. be like there'll be that generation bit like the generation that couldn't remember Queen Victoria on the throne and that definitely feels like that is a generation that is entering a new world that Mm. won't be conditioned as we were by the 20th century, the politics of the 20th century, the social customs of the 20th century, um, um, the divides of the 20th century, you know, will they, 
you know, and I, I, I sort of, I'm fascinated by that generation because they are also my kids' generation. So I'm, I'm interested in, in, you know, will my son have his first date um, you know, virtually, um, you know, put on a headset and meet the girl. Um, will he or boy? Um, will that generation need to pass exams in the same way that you know certainly I did? Um, will they have just you know one career or multiple careers in different sectors, different um, industries? Will they? You know, will they live to a hundred? You know, fifty. There's a stat that I don't yet know how accurate it is. Um, because we don't know really, is 50% of that generation will live to 100. Wow. Well, you know, that's a weird thought, isn't it? That they're going to get a, a telegram from Prince King George, as he will be, <laughs> when they turn 100. <laughs> um, and, and, and yet one in four kids of that age are leaving primary school obese. So, you know, how... Yeah. Was, you know, what does a hundred year life look like for that generation? I think is, is a really interesting question in terms of their bodies, in terms of their careers, in terms of their, you know, their relationship with technology, in terms of, of their relationship to others. Um, and uh, it fascinates me really. Gosh, I hadn't even really thought about, uh, you know, that generation will, you know, will have such a different life experience uh, the one we can't even really imagine where we where we're sat right now. You know, they, yeah, they they really will feel as though they're a completely alien generation when you know when we're old and in our homes, hoping to, hoping that they're caring for us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> hoping that they'll look after us. I'm befriending my uh, my best friends, uh, three year old and five year old, because um, we don't have kids. So I'm hoping that they'll come and visit us in our old people, um, old people home. Maybe it won't even be a home. Maybe it'd be a resort, or maybe my friends and I will just club together and buy a village, and we'll all just look after each each other and <laughs> drink acorn. I mean, let's redesign what old people's home looks like because soon- yes. It's so depressing. So depression. Um, just finally, um, you you're new to Acorn. I know. I know that you've uh, you've been loving it over lockdown. And uh, talk to me about your experience of drinking our lovely, mm. lovely Acorn. So I, I mean, gosh. So my first lockdown was was mostly pregnant, and um, I couldn't drink alcohol. And my husband, bless him kind of pretty much about day three of lockdown decided to introduce a cocktail hour after a day on Zoom. And he's a martini drinker. So it was a martini for him. And I was sort of given this rather low-grade cordial (laughs) as as my lot. And um, I started looking into non-alcoholic options. And um, I tried Seedlip, but I was like, oh, actually, let me try Acorn. So I just bulk ordered everything and started to fixate on Acorn Bitter, which was my sort of go-to aperitif. Um, um, and I, I was quite anal about how I would <laughs> every night uh, mix it, which was um, actually quite a small amount of Acorn Bitter and, and a full... Uh, Full small can of beaver tree. Um, I like the elderflower one or the cucumber. Delish, yeah. And um, three 
uh, cubes of ice, piano cocktail. <laughs> Three, um, very specific. I was very, I'm very specific. And um, the cocktail glass is chilled as well. So I would come nice. down, yeah, like an hour before, put the cocktail glass in the freezer. I mean... <laughs> Uh, this is great. What a ritual. I love this. Um, and I would, I would, yeah, migrate to the sofa and stay there for about three hours. Um, so that was me, heavily pregnant, heavily bloated. And it was so hot. Do you remember that? Lovely oh, yeah. God, it was lovely. And it was just my, my go-to when, uh, when yeah, uh, lockdown one. And actually, what was what I've realized is that over sort of even when I could drink alcohol and I had a baby girl and, and I started to drink alcohol again, um, I realized actually I was navigating, um, I, uh, navigating, I was, I was, I was choosing acorn. over mm. wine. So, um, I've never been a big wine drinker. In fact, I remember when my I met my husband, he used to order his bottles, bottles of wine at dinner and I'd be like, I can't drink that. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and, and so actually I've, I've, I've started to just mm. then explore different flavours and the no groaning, which I love. Yes. Uh, and, mm. yeah, and I also have, have, I do my seed lip. I have my seed lip as well, so I've... I've become like that waitress mum. Who oh, I love it. I love it. It's, it's so funny. My, I've been working in drinks, alcohol mainly for like 20 years. And for 15 years, I worked uh, for a vodka brand. And my mum really had no idea what I did for a living. And, you know, I'd bring her home some things that I've made and they would sit in her garage. And then I, um, you know, then my work started seeing my husband. He worked on a gin brand and she would happily take gin from him and then I started working with acorn created acorn and now she actually understands what I do she's not a big drinker but she loved Campari in her youth and it's it's really made her understand the world of drinks and and help her understand what I do for a living now so she's always got acorn in in her fridge and she always takes pictures of it when she's in the supermarket and it's it's on the shelf and uh yeah she loves it now so it's um it's come full circle for her I can actually give her acorn to drink and she won't refuse it or hide it in the garage like she used to <laughs> I would say what a beautiful sort of transference of intergenerational sort of you know understanding yeah. information empathy it is I think that that's a really important point I think like old older generations are sort of slightly skeptical of non-alcoholic Drinks. I remember my mum seeing my acorn bottom. She was like, how much you pay for that? How <laughs> <laughs> much you pay for that? And I was like, what? Is it? You know, it's a non-alcoholic. She was like, yeah, come on. It's just cordial. I was like, mum. <laughs> she really liked, she didn't like the acorn. She loved no groaning. She yeah. Loved and I've actually bought her some of that. Because um, now she's part of my... Uh, she's part of the yeah that's it the gang the aperitif gang uh, so it is it, there's a sort of there was a there's I think there is a sort of skepticism um and lack of understanding of non-alcoholic drink options um amongst boomers in particular I think gen x are that first generation that started to think about alcohol consumption as mm. it their 40s and 50s and I think there's a sort of openness there but if we could stereotype 
I think, I mean, they're the ones that, you know, are seeing the largest rates of sexually transmitted diseases of any generation. And they are the generation that have the highest consumption of alcohol. Yeah, I think more of that generation are admitted to hospital with alcohol-related injuries than than any other. So, so they're having all the fun, I think. They're having all the sex and they're having all of the fun. <laughs> We're just reclassifying what fun is in the <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So um, just in closing, I have five questions that I ask everybody. Uh, they're rapid-fire questions. They're just uh, first thing that comes to your head. Um what makes you happiest? Um, seeing my kids smile. No. Oh, what are you most proud of? Um, my work-life balance. Nice. What do people get wrong about you? They think I'm cleverer than I am. <laughs> Just because I'm a car in front of my name does not mean no. I'm a- <laughs> do you get people asking you to um assess their medical issues as well <laughs> yeah well, I did um, on a plane once because they'd seen <laughs> doctor on my thing and they asked if I was a medical doctor and I had to say no I'm a doctor of history nothing useful yeah um what scares you my kids future oh. and who would you love to be enjoying a drink with right now Alive or dead? You. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> you. Let's do it. Let's do it. We're long overdue. <laughs> a proper drink. And uh, finally, leave us with some words to live by or something inspiring. Oh my goodness. Okay. Um, <laughs> pause. Let me think. Okay, I can edit the, okay, the link. Okay. You know what? Actually, I thought about this the other day. And it was, I think, one of the really important keys to life is to how to, how can you translate your passion into someone else's need? Very nice. So how can you translate your passion, what you do, whether it's flower arranging or history, into something that someone needs? And if they need it, they'll want it and they'll pay for it. That is profound. Yeah. Like that. Very inspiring. Yeah. Well, fortunately, it seems that lots of people are needing some non-alcoholic drinks. So uh, we've, I've got them covered. Um, <laughs> so, so, Eliza, where can people find out more about you or follow your work or read some of your books? Brilliant. Thank you. So the, the It's All Relative podcast is launching in September and um that's one to keep out for uh one to keep on the lookout for and that is going to be available on apple spotify and anywhere you get your podcasts and we i also do a monthly newsletter which is kind of trying to debunk and explore some of the generational myths in society in the workplace and in the home and um yeah i also have a report coming out in um september which is about generations different generations in the workplace and how you manage those different generations because as we all go back not maybe all to the office but certainly in a hybrid capacity a couple of times uh, a week in the office how do we manage the expectations the different um needs wants and desires um of all the generations in the workplace and that's called mind the gap 
Oh, I love it. <laughs> um, always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. And can't wait to see you for Spritz in real life very soon. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.